Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and this is week two of Fortune Cookie Wisdom, our series on this beautiful biblical concept of wisdom. And wisdom is a fascinating thing in the Bible. It's both described as an attribute of God. It is through wisdom that he creates, sustains, and guides the entire universe. And at the same time, in this profound mystery, wisdom is something that we are told we as human beings can tap into that we can seek, find, and rely on the wisdom of God, ultimately using it to learn to trust God and how he thinks things should go in the daily concrete decisions of our lives. Essentially trusting God's wisdom instead of our own. And ultimately that pursuit of God's wisdom as human beings is really the entire purpose of the Bible. But at the same time, what's really cool is that tradition identifies four particular books that explore this pursuit of wisdom explicitly. These things that have become to be known as the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. Four books in this really unique way that converse with one another. You see, each of these books explores its own unique perspective on what wisdom is without fully capturing it by itself. So that by design, It's only when we hold all four books together that we as human beings can find the multifaceted, complex, infinite wisdom of our creator. And that's critical for where we are going today. To get why, I want to start with Proverbs, which is everyone's favorite wisdom book, it seems. Proverbs has a perspective on wisdom that we find very comfortable. It's a perspective defined by formulas. And y'all, we love formulas, do we not? You see, you read Proverbs, and you're going to pick this up immediately. In it, wisdom means following clear, black and white, time-tested, if-then decision-making formulas. For example, if you work hard, then you'll succeed. If you live righteously, then things will go well for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, people love Proverbs, and there's a good reason for that. Formulas are great. They allow us to live without overthinking every single decision of our lives. They provide us with immense comfort, a sure thing, old, reliable, that we can put into practice and generally get the desired outcome every single time. Just think about it. In your daily life, what are some formulas that you rely on without thinking about them at all? Shout them out. How to make coffee, yes. (laughs) You have that down pat now. You put it in the machine, you hit the button, boop, coffee comes out, right? What else? Vitamins, okay. I like that. What was that? Drive, yes. GPS, oh my gosh. If we had to doubt our GPS every time it told us where to go, right off a cliff, right? As I was thinking about this this week, a few popped into my mind. The first was that when I run into my backyard to play with my daughter, Audie, there's a handrail along our steps, And I fly around that corner without losing any speed because I have learned that I can put my entire weight on that railing and it's going to hold me up. So I do that without thinking, right? Another one, how about driving? When I drive, I know I've learned to trust that the formula of push down brake pedal means car stops, right? If brakes, car stops. Do that without thinking. Or how about chewing? Who here thinks when they chew? You do. (laughs) Chewing, yeah. I have learned the time-tested formula, put food in my mouth, chew for X amount of time, in X way, 
and I eventually can swallow it without dying. The certainty of these things bring me immense comfort because I know they will always work and I don't have to think about them. But have you felt the abject horror when suddenly one of those sure formulas just doesn't work? Who's ever been in that situation? When you go flying around that corner, you put your weight on the handrail and then it becomes detached from the structure. And when their heart fall through the bottom of their chest. Or how about when you push the brake pedal down and the car don't stop? Has anyone been there before? Or how about when you're chewing and you bite your lip? Or you choke? I mean, how about when you live healthy but you still get sick? You work hard but still fail. You love but still get hurt. Y'all, such moments shake us to our core. Few things in life give you such terror as when one of these formulas fails you in the moment. And I think that terror comes from a very clear thing, and that is that they reveal that what we thought were sure formulas were either one, incomplete, we didn't have the full picture, or more often, what they reveal is that in pursuing certainty, we created a formula for something that was too complex to actually have one. They reveal to us that what we thought worked every time was general wisdom, but not concrete fact. It's comfortable believing in formulas. But the point is that wisdom can't fully capture life. In a universe where things happen outside of our control, where life can end the soundest proverbs. Thus, true biblical wisdom requires both formulas and the acceptance of complexity and paradox, the exceptions to the rule, which is why Proverbs' perspective on wisdom is balanced in the Bible by another far less comfortable perspective, that of the book of Job. If Proverbs says, be wise and things will go well for you, then Job tells the story of someone who did everything right and still suffered greatly. Both are in our Bibles. And I think that is fascinating because the Bible tells us that both are somehow true at the same time. Biblically, the full multifaceted image of wisdom includes both Proverbs formulas and simultaneously the acceptance of realities so complex, so mysterious that no formula can capture them, of which Job wrestles with the hardest, suffering. Suffering, suffering, suffering. And y'all, I have wanted to teach on the book of Job forever. <laughs> I waited for Pastor Lori to go on sabbatical. I haggled with Pastor Scott from a full sermon on Job to just two. And here we are, the book of Job. <laughs> really, though, I love the book of Job. This book has meant more to me. It has impacted me more than almost any book in the Bible. But I also get the hesitation that often comes when people teach it on a Sunday morning. Because, y'all, it is one of the strangest and, mis if misunderstood, potentially harmful books that you can engage in biblically. But it's also profound because what it does is it explores a perspective on wisdom that isn't just a formula for minimizing suffering and maximizing pleasure as the path to the good life. 
It's a vision of wisdom grounded in acceptance, an infinite God, and a universe more mysterious and beautiful and at times dangerous than we can ever truly comprehend as finite human beings. So, who's ready for that? Three people. Too bad, you're stuck, captive audience. <laughs> Let's begin. Today, we're gonna sit with the central tension of Job, and then next Sunday, we're gonna dive into its mysterious conclusion. Now, Job, like I said, is perhaps the most unique, strange, universal, and timeless book in all of scripture. The author is anonymous, and the story is a mix of oral tradition and written tradition kind of compiled and thrown together over generations. Some consider it to be the oldest book in the Bible, fun fact, Unlike other biblical books, it has no Israelite characters, which is really strange as the Bible tells the story of Israel. It has no clear location, and it has no clear timestamps. We don't know exactly when it takes place in the biblical story. Content-wise, in my opinion, it's clearly a metaphorical parable, not a literal story. More on that later. Only three of Job's 42 chapters contain narrative. The other 39 are poems presenting dense theological arguments, the majority of which are intentionally wrong. In fact, arguments that if you believe them, you're going to come away with a vision of God that is bonkers out of context. In other words, Job must be read as a unified work dialoguing with these other pieces of wisdom literature. Otherwise, it is ripe for misunderstanding in the worst ways. There's nothing else like it in the Bible, so let's stay open-minded, and let's dive into the absolutely insane world of Job. We pick up in verse 1, chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So we kick things off by being introduced to this guy, Job, about whom we're given little tangible information. Like I said, he's a non-Israelite from this place called the land of Uz, which for a Jewish audience is kind of a fairy tale beginning. Essentially, in effect, what it says is once upon a time in a land far away, there was this guy named Job which fits with what we are actually told about Job, namely that he is a true Prince Charming. He's described like no one in scripture other than Jesus Christ. He's described as blameless, 100% righteous and without sin, a man perfectly living out the Proverbs and reaping all of the benefits that the formulas they provide say he will. He has wealth, he's healthy, hashtag blessed, right? Altogether, the intro is essentially meant to get you this idea. Once upon a time in a land far away, there was this guy named Job who was the best person ever and who, according to the strict understanding of the Proverbs, only deserves blessing for the rest of his days. It's a great start. It's what we would tell our daughter if we were giving her, you know, a fairy tale. And already, the author of Job is leading you into a trap. Because immediately from here, this strange thing happens. We as the readers are teleported into this metaphorical scene where God is in his throne room and he's holding this meeting with these heavenly beings that are his advisors. Kind of like the president's situation room, if you've ever seen the West Wing, right? They're just trying to give him advice. 
And there we find a figure named Satan conversing with God. What? Already, we arrive at one of those potential misunderstandings. Without getting too nerdy about it, we hear the word Satan, and what do we think of? We think of the devil, right? Horns, pitchforks, red hair, tortures people forever. Uh, essentially, the demonic personification of evil, which is a problem because that's not what Job is talking about. Again, without getting into the weeds, in Hebrew, you have to understand this word, Satan, or here, Hasatan, thus Satan, is just a word that gets used in multitudes of ways throughout the scriptures. Essentially, it translates to the accuser or the opposer. And like I said, it has a variety of uses. Here, it is used as a title or a job description, not a name. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to Kings, you're gonna find, for example, when Solomon's enemies oppose him, they are described as Satans or Hasatans because they are the ones who oppose Solomon. You guys tracking with me on this? See, that's how it's used in Job. That's how it's used here. And you're probably like, Mike, why is that important? Well, it's very important, y'all. Because if you read Job as saying that evil incarnate hangs out with God in his heavenly throne room and gives him advice on what to do in his good world, you are gonna get some jacked up beliefs about how God operates, are you not? And it's only gonna get worse when you find out what comes next in the book of Job. See, in Job, Hasatan isn't the devil. It's a divine prosecutor of sorts. This person who's been given a job to do, he's responsible for bringing accusations before God. And this is setting up a thought exercise because what essentially happens is while he fulfills that role, the accuser opposes God's assessment of Job. God says, Job is so righteous. And the accuser says, ah, 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 is Job actually righteous? Or does Job just act righteous because he's been blessed so thoroughly? Essentially, raising the accusation that Job wouldn't be a good person if he suffered. An accusation, which then over the rest of the book gets put to the test. Because from here, the book of Job veers hard from Proverbs. To summarize the rest of the book, once upon a time in a place far away, a guy named Job who did everything right for reasons completely unknowable to him begins to suffer immensely due to no fault of his own. Job loses everything. His family, his possessions, his health. Now stop. This is why misunderstanding Job as literal is so unbelievably dangerous. You'll end up with an image of God who flippantly makes bets with the devil to destroy people's lives. Does that jive with anything else you've seen in scripture when describing God? No. And that's because I think this misses the point. I believe strongly that Job is a poetic parable, since it's written in poems, but I digress, and that this fictional opening is meant to convey one central idea that you need to hold on to. Job, a good person, suffers without sinning or understanding why he's suffering. Who has ever felt that before? And this idea is presented because it's gonna set up the theological questions and debates that direct the next 40 chapters of the book. 
What does it mean that bad things happen to good people in God's universe? Should God always reward and punish behavior immediately after it's done? Can we trust this God if he has a universe where suffering can occur without moral cause? What is wise in the midst of suffering we don't understand? Are any of those questions relevant to anyone here today? I find them incredibly relevant. You see, what Job's gonna do is without giving us much concrete answers, it's gonna wrestle with some of the most universal, timeless questions about suffering that there are. And it's gonna begin with the arrival of Job's wonderful friends in Job chapter two, verse 11. So these three friends come and they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. And they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So for seven days, these three friends sit with Job silently. It is the perfect image of empathetic, abiding presence with someone who is grieving. And as my Old Testament professor in seminary put it, for three verses, Job's friends do exactly what you should do when someone is grieving. And then they open their mouths. And for the next 34 chapters of this book, you are gonna watch people get everything wrong. Because what they do is these friends start trying to explain to Job why he is suffering. And the book flips from narrative to this 30 plus chapter poem of back and forth monologues, debating the nature of suffering and the justice of God. The author structures this entire long debate like a trial. It's actually really fascinating. Job calls God to court to explain to him why he's suffering despite being innocent. And Job's friends become prosecutors. They become the accusers in which they defend God. And it's all this repeating cycle of prosecution and defense and their arguments are actually pretty simple when you sum them down. First, we have Job's argument. One, God is supposed to be just. Two, justice is always black and white. Immediate, just recompense. Do good things, God rewards you. Do bad things, God punishes you immediately. Three, Job says, I'm innocent. So my suffering is not just, it's not deserved. And thus, four, God is either unjust or he's incompetent. He doesn't know how to run his universe effectively. Then on the other hand, we have the friend's argument, which is kind of the same, but they differ with Job on a few things. One, they agree God is just. Two, justice is black and white, Job. Three, a just God must operate his universe according to the simple black and white justice always. And here's where they differ. And thus four, Job must have sinned to deserve the suffering he's going through. In other words, as Job experiences the worst suffering of his life, his friends try to convince him that it's all his fault. Speculating on how he must have oppressed the poor, how he probably beats up widows in his spare time. I'm not even making that up. That's one of the things that they bring up in the book. How he should be grateful because he actually probably deserves more suffering than he's actually gotten. And later a fourth friend named Elihu adds that God's probably destroyed Job's life and killed his family to build his character. They're terrible friends, y'all. <laughs> terrible friends. Do not do that. 
and all operate along the same premise concerning God, justice, and suffering. Simply put, Job must have done something to deserve his suffering, and thus, if he repents, he won't suffer anymore. Because they live in a world where only the Proverbs define wisdom. If X, then Y. Pretty simple. But, and this is the fascinating part about Job, from the start, we as readers know a truth that the friends do not. What truth is that? That they're wrong. That Job is innocent. That this isn't about deserving. It's not about fault. It's not about what Job did or didn't do. And I think this is a profound, profound mystery. I think this is really profound wisdom. You see, in Job, wisdom demands the recognition that at times suffering has nothing to do with our choices or our morality. That there's no formula that is a sure thing from escaping suffering in this life. That in this complex universe, it's simply part of being a human being. Something that we can only truly accept, not formulate. For 30 plus chapters, of accusations and misrepresentations, God remains silent as these people bicker back and forth. And when he does respond to Job, it is possibly the most utterly mysterious and I think beautiful response and piece of scripture in the entire Bible. But in a shameless hook, come back next week for that. Because <laughs> for today, I think this provides enough wisdom. The problem in Job isn't individual sin or not following the formulas. It's believing that we can always and fully formulate and control our lives and our universe. Let me ask you, I'm gonna talk about this. I wanna see if you guys relate. I think what Job's trying to get at is this impulse that we have as human beings to turn God into a cosmic gumball machine defined by transactional relationships, formulas where we can get what we want every single time. We put in quarters, we get gumballs out. I put in prayer, I get health from God. I put in hard work, I get riches from God. I put in niceties, I get the romantic relationship that I always dreamed of from God. And when I don't, it's not that this universe is kind of complex, it's that I must have put in the wrong quarter. I must need to do better. Because if I do better, well then I will surely get what I want because that's how this all works which is really comforting to believe, especially when it's working for us. That if I never make mistakes, then I won't suffer. But what Job is shouting at us is that such a black and white vision of reality will fundamentally fail us inevitably. And thus, if it's the only wisdom that we rely on to navigate our lives, it will break us inevitably. Because, again, let me see if you relate. I didn't get what I wanted. I got sick, I failed. My loved one died, and that must be because I'm not good enough. I didn't pray enough. I'm not loved enough. I'm not good enough. I didn't control enough. Has anyone played out those stories in their heads before when they suffer? Y'all, those monologues will make you sick every single time because it's just not reality. God offers better wisdom. That's not black and white. That's not always comfortable. But it's wisdom grounded in the acceptance that our universe is vaster than we can grasp. 
and directed by an infinite creator God who's more good, who's more just, who's more loving, who's more wise than we could ever fathom. Wisdom in Job is grounded in embracing paradox and mystery, which in this radical way can actually produce within us a trust that we can find always, especially in the realities that offer no certainties. And y'all, if you have ever wondered the questions that we started with, that's good news, is it not? That's good news. Am I right? But again, next week, for today, let's just sit with the wisdom of this opening section. Because I think there's a lot here. First, let me ask you, what wisdom can we glean from the character of Job? See, the Bible's vision of suffering is complex. Y'all, there are times when we suffer as a natural consequence to our poor choices. Do not mishear me. That does happen, and you know it happens. There are times where we goof, and we pay the price. Am I right? (laughs) You guys like Proverbs way too much. And in that, we need the wisdom of Proverbs because we need to, with self-honesty, reflect on who we are and why we do what we do, and we need to change our actions. We need to change our lives, and that's good. But Job balances that because it reminds us that we need to also hold in the same hand this recognition that some of our greatest sufferings have nothing to do with fault or what's deserved. That often suffering is simply part of life in this universe that can't be explained, only accepted. And I don't know about you, but I know for myself and I know for some others in this community that we need that vision of wisdom from Job. There are people in this community who are suffering greatly in this season due to things that are totally outside of their control. And the worst thing we could do to those people is to tell them it's their fault. People who have lost friends, loved ones to COVID or other tragedies. People who have buried parents, children, spouses. People who have received cancer diagnoses, who have been crushed by mental illness, who have faced physical decay. There are people who have watched their marriages and relationships end, even though they did all the right things, who've lost jobs and their life savings at the hands of a global economy that they are like a little speck in the wheel of. And if that's you, I need you to hear me. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. God isn't punishing you. He's not squashing you for something that you just haven't identified yet. Sometimes suffering just is, y'all. Stop blaming yourself and know that God is with you in your grief. And he may be silent, but maybe, just maybe, that's because he's not a crappy friend. Maybe he knows that there is no why that will fix your pain. Maybe he's just sitting with you as that abiding presence. You can bring everything to the God of Job. Because Job whines and he wails and he complains and he lobs accusations and God is still with him in his grief. This God of Job can take your pain, your confusion, your doubts, your grief, your anger. You can name it. You can sit with it. You can feel it fully in his presence and know that you're not alone and he is not against you. He's right alongside you in that suffering. Second, What wisdom can we learn from Job's friends? And I honestly don't like sermons like this, but uh, it's mostly things not to do. (laughs) This is the best pastoral advice I could ever give you. 
What should you do when comforting a grieving person in the moment? Shut up. Just shut up. Just shut up. I get it. You see pain. It's uncomfortable to just sit there and feel like you're doing nothing. But y'all, it's not your job to defend God. It's not your job to fix that person's pain. And it's definitely not your job to start explaining to them why you think they're suffering while they're in it. Because one, you can't fix it. And two, you don't actually know. Humble yourself. Sure, it might be the consequence of a choice they made, but it also might not be. And regardless, God thinks you are incredibly incapable of having the capacity to judge that accurately as a finite human being. Shut up. Y'all, this is wisdom. 99% of the time, what's your job in comforting those who are racked by suffering and grief? Simply be an abiding presence. Sit down, shut your mouth, listen, love them. Don't make it about you and some poor attempt to empathize. Just listen and be present. Take them a meal. Remind them that they're not alone in this often confusing universe. Can I get an amen? amen. That's wisdom. That's wisdom birthed from wrestling with the mystery of suffering. And I'm gonna invite up Scott for one last song. Enduring it, I just want you to reflect and just some questions that I think Job asks me every day. Where do you need to surrender your formulas? Where do you need to hear that it's not your fault? Where do you need to surrender control and just be an abiding presence of someone suffering? And who do you really struggle to do that with? Is it your kids, your friends, your parents, your partners? Who do you just always have to say something to? instead of just listening and being present with them? Where do you need to drop the fortune cookie wisdom and embrace the wisdom of Job so you can accept and find God in suffering and through your presence reflect them to people who are suffering and be a little bit of good news in just how you sit and listen? That's wisdom. Amen? Amen.